0: say that I enjoy preaching through a book. I think it's a good way to preach. It's quite systematic. It means that you can't skip subjects that you want to avoid or that you don't like because they're just there in the passage and you have to say something. You have to address them. It also solves the uh, uh, preacher's perennial problem of what am I going to preach on next week, which is every preacher's Monday morning nightmare. Um, So I think for lots of reasons it's good to preach through a book and um, it's good to do some other things particularly when God lays it on our hearts uh, to do that so not to get so stuck into uh, a routine we don't allow God to break in but as I've been looking forward to and preparing for this year uh, I've known that it's going to be right to at least start the year by looking at a particular book together and uh, towards the back end of last year I began praying about this and started to read through 1 Peter and felt it would be good to look at and preach through 1 Peter. So if you'd like to find that in your Bibles, that would be helpful, I'm sure. This is not going to be a long series. We're not talking about Elijah and Elisha, epic proportions here. It's going to be quite a short series. It's going to be eight weeks long. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what God has for us over this time. I'm hoping by this point that you've found the book of 1 Peter, towards the end of the New Testament, and you're there ready. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 1.
1: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, who have been chosen according to the full knowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise to God for a living hope. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels longed to look into these things.
0: That's great. Thank you very much. Well, before we get into the text, I thought it would be helpful to, uh, to give you an overview of the book and to look at some uh, questions like, you know, who's it from, who's it to, why was it written, these sort of things. So, so firstly then, who's the letter from? Well, those of you who are awake this morning will have noticed that in the first verse that Louise read, said this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's who it's from. Right from the earliest time, this letter of 1 Peter, right from the earliest time that it was circulated in the early church, it was known and accepted to be from the Apostle Peter. Now, some people have objected to this, saying that the Greek is too good to be Peter's. I'm sure those of you who are Greek linguistic experts that have been reading it alongside the English translation that you just keep for your lightweight spare moments will have noticed that the Greek is excellent. you have noticed that, haven't you? I can see some nodding faces and you've been thinking, well, the Greek's really very good to be Peter's. And that's true, the Greek is very good. And that's why some people say, said hey, it can't be Peter's, he was a fisherman for goodness sake. But you have to realise that even though Peter was a fisherman, and may not have had formal education in the way that we would understand it. He grew up in an area where, although Aramaic was the most commonly used language, Greek would have been very widely used and known also. In fact, Galilee was surrounded by Greek cities, by Greek-speaking cities. And most people in the surrounding areas would have been bilingual. So actually, it's not hard to accept that a letter is written from Peter. You'll know, I'm sure, that letters of this time, uh, you start with who the letter is from. Those of you who are old enough to remember what it's like to write letters, not emails, but letters with a pen and a paper and an envelope and a stamp, Some of you are looking really shocked at this point. You'll know that you used to sign the letter at the bottom. You'd write your letter, Dear so and so, you know, Dear Auntie Maud, thank you for the lovely scarf you sent me for Christmas, etc., etc. Love from whoever it is, and you finish it off. Whereas letters in this time, you would start with who it's from. So that's what Peter's doing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. As you get the scroll, as you open it, you know immediately who it's from. When was it written? Well, persecution of Christians got particularly bad in the years AD 64 to 68 under the Emperor Nero. And uh, he, he tasked himself with killing off as many Christians and persecuting them as possible. And tradition has it that Peter died during this period. So it must have been written before AD 64. Now, there are various other reasons that we won't go into this morning, that it probably wasn't written before AD 62. So we're left with that sort of period of time, AD 62 to 64, for actually both of Peter's letters. So we can assume then that one Peter would have been written towards the earliest, the earlier part of that period. So who's the letter to then? Who's his, who is he writing to? Well, again, we know this from the very first verse of the letter. Peter said it's from him and then he goes on to outline who it's to now Paul's letters were often written to particular churches in certain towns so he may have been writing to the church in such and such a place well this is a little bit different Peter is writing to those Christians in Pontus, Galatia Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia (coughs) Excuse me. And it's been suggested that these places form a travel route through Asia Minor. Those of you who are are travel experts, Wes and others, will, I'm sure, have noticed that that would have been an ideal circular route. You'd have noticed that, wouldn't you? Thank you for nodding enthusiastically. That encourages me. And it's a circular route where the bearer of the letter could have taken it round to the major centres of Christian influence, the major towns. Copies could have been made for other smaller churches in outlying areas. And by this method, Peter would have been able to write to quite a wide geographic area. But why? Why was it written? Well, Wayne Gruden, in his commentary on 1 Peter, he talks about um, these distant Christians in genuine need of the letters teaching and encouragement. (coughs) Teaching and encouragement. And I'm sure we would say, yeah, we need teaching and we need encouragement. So 1 Peter's a good place to get it from. Uh, Another commentator uh, talks about uh, the letter providing encouragement and direction of a Christian in his journey to heaven. Sounds good, isn't it? That's what this letter is going to provide for us. Encouragement and direction for our journey to heaven. And he goes on, this is Archbishop Robert Layton, he says, the heads of doctrine, the key points of doctrine contained in it are many. (coughs) But the main, that are most insisted on are these. Faith, obedience and patience. Faith, obedience and patience. We're going to come up against these three. Uh, We're going to hit these three as we go. He says. To get, goes on to establish them, so faith to establish them in believing, obedience to direct them in doing, and patience to comfort them in suffering. So there's some of the key things that Peter's going to be writing about. Now, we don't have time in eight weeks to do a verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Peter. So what we'll be doing each week is drawing out some key themes from the passage we look at. And what are some of the key themes? Well, we've talked about that already, but I also include things like the grace of God, God's sovereignty, inheritance, how to live as a Christian and holiness, building a house for God, submitting to one another, personal relationships as well as relationships to authority, getting rid of sin, suffering as a Christian, and some words to leaders, or those who would aspire to be leaders. So there's some good lessons there, aren't there? There's some good subjects that Peter's going to tackle and talk about. And that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to draw something from in the coming few weeks that are ahead of us in this short series on One Peter. So why don't we pray and uh, ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and help us. And uh, we'll start by getting into the passage and see what God has for us. Father, we thank you uh, for this letter that Peter wrote to these places. And as we spend the next eight weeks or so looking at these uh, verses together, looking at this letter, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and breathe upon these words. Make them come alive to us. Come and be our teacher, that we might encounter Jesus afresh in, in this letter and be encouraged in our faith in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes and you want a title for this morning, it's this, Knowing Your Inheritance. Knowing Your Inheritance. And uh, we'll come on to that in a short while. My first question to you, though, is this. Where's your home? Where's your home? I remember <clears throat> sometime after moving to Derby that Derby started to feel like home for me. It wasn't straight away. It wasn't in the first week or even in the first month. It took a while. But I remember at one point, I think I was probably driving around the ring road and I think at this point I, I knew where the ring road was. So that was, that was good progress. And uh, Derby started to feel like home for me. And I felt ready to, put, to buy a house, ready to, to really put down some roots. Now, I'd always intended to be here for the long term, and still do. But Derby didn't feel like home straight away. Now, I'm pleased to say that it does, and I love living here. I don't have any plans to move anywhere else. Derby feels like home for me. Now, as a British citizen... I have a UK passport, and I am entitled to live here. I I can choose to live in this city, and and as a UK passport holder, I have that right. But as a Christian, I've got a new passport as well. Not my one from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but one from the Kingdom of God. I as a Christian, and you as Christians this morning are now citizens of heaven. I don't live there yet, but I know it's where I really belong. And although I feel at home in Derby, at home in this city, and love living here, I know that it's only for a season. And in fact, I know that living in this world is only for a season. And that is true for you as well. See, I'm looking forward to another place, a new heaven and a new earth. And so when Peter writes to who he describes in verse 1 as strangers in this world, he doesn't just mean that they were new to a particular town. He doesn't just mean that they would turned up to a new place and got a little bit lost and weren't quite aware of where they were yet, hadn't quite got their bearings and just felt like a stranger in a new town. No, he means more than that. Now, it's true that some of his readers may have been scattered by persecution, particularly Jewish believers. But by the time that Peter's writing, around AD 62 or so, the churches that he writes to are made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And, in fact there would have been many Gentile Christians, many Gentile believers. Gentiles were just people who weren't Jews, so that would be, I guess, all if not, well, most if not all of us here would be classified as Gentiles. They would have been local to a particular place already. They would have known their way around the town. They would have known how to get across the city. So it wasn't that they were, were a stranger in their town, but rather Peter describes them as strangers in this world, he means that there are only temporary residents here on earth. That's what Peter is referring to. Now in Hebrews 11, we read about various heroes of our faith. And the writer says this, you don't have to turn to it, but it's Hebrews 11 verse 13 if you want to look at it later. The writer says this, listen to what he says. <clears throat> All these people, the list that he's just given us in Hebrews 11, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Is our phrase again. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Similar sort of feel, isn't it? Right, to the Hebrews describing uh, <coughs> the, the readers of, uh, of that letter and, or rather the, the, the heroes of faith that had been talking about as strangers on earth, aliens even. So these people saw themselves as that. They saw themselves as strangers on earth. They saw themselves as like aliens, if you like. <coughs> and in Hebrews 11, we're told that they were looking for a better country a heavenly one. And that's the same feel of this verse in 1 Peter chapter 1 here. So where's your home? Is it in Derby? Or do you feel actually, yeah, you're a citizen of heaven now. And that's where you're on a journey towards. That's where you're you're going. You see, it is so easy to get caught up in the very consumerist culture in which we live. It's so easy to always want the latest thing, isn't it? Be it a gadget or a car or a bigger house or the best clothes or whatever it might be that excites you. It's so easy to get caught up in those things. And one way that we can help ourselves fight against that personally and individually is to be clear that we are citizens of another place. Our home is now in heaven. We're only here for a little while. If we just seek to make ourselves comfortable, then we miss the point. We're on a journey. We're travelling through. <clears throat> have you noticed how on a journey, some people are really good at travelling light, whilst others are not so good? I have to admit that I'm pretty rubbish at travelling light on holiday. I guess maybe could be because as I grew up, most uh, all of our family holidays as as a child were in this country, and normally we drive somewhere. So. It didn't really matter how heavy your suitcase was or if you had an extra bag or two or another pair of shoes or some wellies, because it was in in England, um, or whatever it might be, you could just throw it in the boot and Dad would somehow cram it in. And When the boot got too small, he bought a roof rack and a box and so we could cram that full of stuff as well. It didn't matter. It was fine. But if you're used to travelling abroad you'll know that you'll take your suitcase to the airport and, and you'll be lugging it hard behind you. You've packed it full. You've crammed it full of stuff. You've sat on it to close it. And you've dragged it in. As soon as you get close to the checkout operatives, you know just how you pick it up and see how light it is as you sort of take it forward, try and pretend that it's not really very heavy, hoping their scales don't really work very well. And you, you sort of nonchalantly put it on the, uh, on the conveyor And all these red lights go off because it's way too heavy. Some people sort of do that and they sort of go away for two weeks and just got a rucksack on their back and turn up and, like, yeah, that's all I need. They're really good at travelling light. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're more like me. I don't know. But rather than travelling on a holiday, what are you like at travelling through life? Are you travelling light? Or are you getting bogged down by the things that are around you? Are you carrying too much stuff with you? I'm not suggesting that we become detached from the world. Far from it. We need to be engaged with it. And engaged and in (coughs) getting to know people that are around us. But listen, learn to travel light. Know where your home really is. Don't get too weighed down by stuff along the way. Peter goes on and reminds his readers that it's because of God's great mercy that he has given us new birth. It's not by anything that we have done, no achievement or hard work on our part or on their part. It's all because of God's great, wonderful mercy. And just as it's true for Peter's first century readers, friends, it's true for you and I as well. You are not saved because of anything you have done. You have been chosen, Peter says here in verse 2, because of God's great mercy and wonderful grace, verse 3. It's about his mercy, not your hard work. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this truth. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that somehow we need to add something to the deal, add something to that salvation. You don't. You don't have to add good works. You don't have to add Bible reading or prayer. You don't have to add fasting. I'm particularly pleased about that one. All these things, though, are good and they're of value. They will honour God. They will draw you closer to him. But they don't add to or change your salvation. And similarly, if you don't do them, you won't lose your salvation either the Bible makes a very clear distinction between rewards, which you can earn or lose, and salvation, which is a gift of God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? So let's receive it gladly and not try to earn it. Now, Peter goes on and talks about how this gift of God brings us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or faint. Once you get to a particular stage of life, inheritance becomes more of an issue for you. Inheritance tax, for example, is a hot topic among those who are uh, aware that their time on earth is in its final chapter, Maybe it's even more relevant to their children or others who hope that they may inherit something from them. Saturday Live on Radio 4, if you ever listen to it, has a feature called Inheritance Tracks, which allows someone to talk about the song that they inherited from their parents and the song that they'd pass on to the next generation. Now, whether it's tax or tracks or something else, the idea of an inheritance... Generally speaking, is something that excites us. <clears throat> if I was to tell you now, you're gonna, you come into an inheritance, you'd probably look quite pleased about it. I'm not going to tell you that. Don't look that pleased. okay? <laughs> I was listening recently to a program about someone whose job it was to track down people who'd come into an unexpected inheritance, often from someone that they either didn't know or someone whom they'd lost contact with. It's a fascinating listen. I felt like dropping them a line just, just to say, hey, here are my details in case you ever need them. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a great program. But with any inheritance you get in this life, you can be sure it's either going to rot or perish or be taxed or spent or just simply fight. The inheritance you can receive as a Christian is totally different. You've got an inheritance that's being kept for you, secure, safe, in heaven, and waiting for you to receive it at a proper time. The inheritance is your share as a Christian in God's heavenly kingdom. Now, I've got a favourite teddy from my childhood. He's called Fred. Would you, like see, would you like to meet Fred? In fact, I'm not sure that Fred has... <coughs> ever been out in recent years but but this is my favorite teddy as a kid this is this is fred okay now fred was and is still loved and cherished because he's my favorite teddy remember and uh, i've had him from when i was very very small but over time blessing as you can see ted has just got a bit tired a bit worn out. He's a thread bear, not so much threadbare. Very, very good over there, thank you. Now, 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 one day... and He's even got a hole here. It, it's sad, isn't it? Isn't it sad? Oh, poor old Fred. Now, now, one day, my children may inherit Fred the Ted. <laughs> but, bless him, by that point, Fred will be very fragile very worn out, and pretty perishable. Even though he might be my favourite teddy. Peter says, the inheritance we get from God is imperishable. It won't wear out. It's not spoilt by sin, unlike the world around us, which is marred by its effects. It's unfading unlike some books on my bookshelf, which have become faded with time, it's kept in heaven for you. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were looking forward to inheriting the land of Canaan. (coughs) But that was eventually taken away from them. And even when they did possess it for a while, anything it produced decayed and and rotted away anyway. (coughs) So my question to you is this. What's your inheritance? What's your inheritance? Our inheritance as Christians is not simply a land, or a city, or even a new earth. But rather it's all that God will give us. It's his salvation. In fact, our inheritance is God himself. In Numbers 18, verse 20, God says this to Aaron. He says, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. (coughs) Our inheritance is God himself. Wonderful, isn't it? But as well as your inheritance being God himself, you have an investment opportunity now to add to that. If that were possible, how can you add to God? But actually the Bible tells us that we can invest now for treasure in heaven. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you've got stocks and shares, then you might be unsure of their value right now. (coughs) If you own your own home, You probably know, as I do, that it's likely not to be worth as much as it was perhaps 12 or 18 months ago. We don't know how the economy will work out in the coming months ahead. But you can be sure of this. God's inheritance for you is kept secure. It's not affected by the FTSE 100. It's not affected by government policy or interest rate cuts. Your inheritance in God is secure. It's in heaven, it's safe, and it's for you. So are you storing up treasure to go with your inheritance? Where is your treasure? What's your inheritance going to be? Ultimately, Jesus was saying in Matthew 6, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is it more in this life and this world, or is it in heaven? Are you a citizen of heaven? Peter knows that his readers may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials on their journey to heaven. And in fact, within a couple of years of writing, the political situation would have changed so drastically, Nero would have started a great and violent persecution of Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. Things were going to change. But even before that, things may not have been easy for Peter's first century readers. And ever since then, for us also, things are not always easy. Whether they be financial hardships, relational difficulties, or actual persecution for following Jesus, the Christian is never promised an easy life. However, he or she is told to rejoice because any trials or difficulties now are only, as Peter puts, for a little while when compared to eternity. You see how eternity keeps pop- popping up as a theme? We can get so caught up in everyday life that we lose any sense of eternity. Yet it's this perspective of eternity that can provide the strength needed to keep going. In everyday life, on our journey to heaven. Now, there is a balance to be struck and an awareness that trials and rejoicing are actually possible simultaneously for the Christian. Paul says this to, in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal, eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what were Paul's light and momentary troubles? Well, he lists them, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians 11. <coughs> he says... Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 if you struggle with maths. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. Not a bad list of light and momentary troubles. Would you agree? But as we persevere through these trials, the results that Peter says in verse 7 are these. Praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now whilst it's true that remaining faithful will result in praise and glory to God, the text can just as easily be read as referring to the praise that God will give his people on that last day. Isn't that incredible? Don't you want to receive some praise from God for how you lived your life? Yes, your life will result in praise and worship to God, but what Peter's saying here is, God wants to be able to praise you for how you lived your life. Just in case you're struggling with this concept, hear how Paul puts it in Romans 4 when he talks about that day that's coming. He says this, Romans 4 verse 5. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So you can receive praise from God. You can receive that, well done. Good and faithful servants from God himself. Don't you want to receive that? Hey, I know I do. God wants to praise you for being faithful through that trial. Faithful through that season. So I wonder, will he be able to? Well, as we finish, as we wrap up, what's our application? Three things real quick as we close. Do you know where your home is, first of all? I don't mean, can you find your home when you get lost in the city, but rather, are you focused on your eternal home or your temporary one here on earth? Have you got that eternal perspective that Peter talks about? Secondly, what about your inheritance? Are you storing up treasure on earth, in your bank balance or share portfolio, or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Perhaps a better question would be, what are you doing to store up treasure in heaven? And thirdly, even when things get tough, keep hanging in there. Keep going. Keep looking forward to that day. Remaining faithful to God, rejoicing in him, in every season, will result in praise and glory to him and him being able to praise you on that day for being faithful and coming through it. Don't you want to receive that from him? Let's stand and I'll pray as we close together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this letter we've begun to unpack that Peter wrote to these uh, early Christians. Thank you for all that we can learn from it. And I pray this morning you would help us, Lord, to, to really know where our home is, to have that eternal perspective on things, not to somehow get detached from the world around us, very much to engage with it, but help us too to know that our home is ultimately with you. We're citizens now of heaven. Help us to have that eternal perspective on things. Help us too, Lord, to store up treasure in heaven. We might inherit it in that day. As well as our inheritance being you, we look forward to being with you. We pray that you would help us to store up treasure, not just now, but treasure in heaven for that day when it comes. And Lord, help us to remain faithful to you. Help us to rejoice in you and in your grace in every season of life, every trial that comes. Lord, that we might be able to honour you and worship and glorify you in it. But also, Lord, might be able to receive from you that praise, that commendation, that well done on that final day. Lord, we pray you'd help us with these things, even in the days ahead, even this week. Help us, Lord, as we seek to live for you, as we seek to honour you. Be with us, Lord, I pray, as we go about our our, our daily lives. Give us opportunities to live for you, to speak for you, to honour you at every opportunity. We ask it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.